Hi, it's Akko, and welcome to another episode of the Colored Pages Book Club, a bi-weekly podcast that focuses on fiction, fantasy, and magical realism written by writers from, you guessed it, colorful backgrounds. I know what y'all are thinking. Where's Marcy? And I couldn't say for certain he mentioned quickly something about helping Jesse and James find this ever-elusive Pikachu. There was talks of whimsical clothing and comical hijinks, which you know I wholeheartedly approve of. But don't worry, he will be back in a moment. Until then, though, I have the immense honor of introducing our first guest. Here at the Claire Pages Book Club, we had the pleasure of interviewing Hemele Ahilo author Raika Aoki, and she's astounding. Her voice is mesmerizing, her philosophies on writing are deep and practical, and her insights on people, POCs, and the way the world turns. Me and Marcy really loved doing this interview, and we know y'all will too, so without further ado, enjoy. Thank you so much for, you know, reaching out on Twitter and like, you know, being down for this. Like this is our first time ever like talking to an author. So it's like an interesting <laughs> kind of like shift. I don't know. I just thought, you know, I was sort of looking at what y'all were doing and um, I thought to myself, you know, we talk about, you know, folks of color helping folks of color and kind of mixing and matching. And why not walk the walks? So I just sent you an email, say, hey, you know, I can, help, you know, if you yes. want to know a little bit more about the book, I thought. Oh, here. Hi. I got some time and, you know, I would rather talk to you all than talk to people who aren't interested in my work. So we're good. <laughs> I'm so into that. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate the solidarity. Like, honestly, <laughs> truly. <laughs> Maybe in the spirit of a true book club, quote unquote, we'll just throw you the questions and then kind of keep going like that. How's that sound? Let's do that. That sounds Perfect. great. So what was your inspiration for becoming a writer? Or if that feels too cliche for you, what is your favorite part of writing? Mm. Well, I think inspiration for becoming a writer. It's, you know, that question happens, but um, I don't think I really had an inspiration to become a writer. I think that it mm. was everything else. Um, I tried to run away from it and it mm. kept coming mm. back to me. See, when I was growing up, um, I'm Japanese-American, I'm fourth generation, and there weren't very many uh, Asian-American writers. And there was – this is even before Amy Tan. Amy Tan had just started coming out, and Maxine Hong Kingston was around. But it was a time when, you know, publishers were a lot more conservative and – even though Amy Tan sold, it wasn't a situation of we need more Asian American authors. We needed what what it was was we need more writers who write like Amy Tan, you know, because that's just the way the publishing game works. Mm. So there was so there was no future. There was actually something called the Amy Tan rejection letter. Ooh. Where, you know, you mm. wrote a book and they said, hey, have you read Amy Tan? Have you read Joy Luck Club? We want something like that. And so it just became kind of a joke. You know, it's like a Amy Tan rejection letter. Wow. Uh, and they would really put specifically the Joy Luck Club in the rejection letter? almost. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> 
Talk about tokenism. That's crazy. Well, you know, there was, you know, there's always been the thing, right, of trying to tell Asians apart. You know, we all look alike to somebody, right. and you know, and it's like, okay, well, they're interchangeable. It's just find a new Amy Tan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and you know, it happened. It happens all over the place, right? Even back in the days of kung fu movies, right? Find the next Bruce Lee. Mm. Um, you know, just you know, just replace one. You know, replace one Asian with another. Who the hell is going to care? It's all chicken chow mein anyway. Um, so it was that kind of in, in atmosphere. And so, you know, my parents suggested I don't go into writing. And um, being kind of a dutiful Asian child, I thought, OK. And I tried to my degree is act, I, my undergraduate degree is actually in chemistry. And so. But what I would do is I would write chemistry notes going, you know, one way in my notebook, but then I'd write poetry the other way. I just couldn't get away from it. I think if you had given me a chance to have an operation to extract the writer from me, I would have seriously given it consideration. Really? So it was just something that like, it was just like this thing that kept coming back and you were just like, I don't even really want to entertain this, but I like can't. I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to entertain this. Um, I was a frightened little kid. I, you know, um, my family life was a little bit rough and um, I just wanted to kind of go through life without making waves. But the writer just kind of kept coming back. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was scary because if I looked on TV, there were no Asians. If I looked on, you know, in books, there were no Asians there. It wasn't the thing that Asians did. It was like, you know, it's that thing that white people did. And I don't know, I, I need to go actually, you know, do I need to I need to stop this. Um, but, huh. you know, it, it kept coming back. And then finally in in college, when it was time to apply to graduate school, um, because, you know, being Asian, that's what we all do. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, I mean, <laughs> go ahead and laugh. We're all in family here. But that's what we do. Um, uh, see, you can't get this off my website. You have to talk. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but I had a bit of a breakdown. Uh, I couldn't. I just. I could. I just couldn't see myself doing this. And so, I worked in the laboratory for two or three years. And uh, every year, I applied to programs and uh, applied to writing programs. I, not that I think thought I'd get in because I didn't have an English degree. And my parents, I didn't grow up with Shakespeare or, you know, I did grow up with American stuff like, you know, jazz and stuff. I didn't have anything. It's just like this, I was just as Asian. I didn't really belong here. Mm. And um, but um, for some reason, I kept writing and my MFA program took me and I sort of, you know, left the area and went to the East Coast. And mm. that's really the first time I was taken seriously as a writer. Mm. Right, good. This is so good to hear as an immigrant. Um, just the the concept or the narrative of your parents telling you that there are three professions. We all know what they are. I think it's doctor, uh-huh. lawyer, and engineer. Yes. And you, <laughs> and you can't you can't you know go outside of that. It, it makes the idea of writing and any kind of creative pursuit a really like a struggle in a way because you don't think that that's your place. Like you were saying that you you want to be a dutiful like child and impress your parents, and not disappoint them. So I feel like so many uh, immigrant kids and and so you get this one too, right? Oh, of course, of all co- the time, right? And so mm. <laughs> so much sense. So to hear you kind of break that mold is very inspiring, and I think I think a lot of people need that. So it's very cool to hear that. 
Yeah. And I, it was, it was really, really interesting because um, when I went to school to, I went to Cornell for my MFA, Mm -hmm. which, you know, being this kid from Hawaii, you know, Hawaii and East LA and and all of this kind of stuff. um, I don't know how much you know about the LA area, but, you know, East LA is kind of a, you know, Latinos. And now there's a lot of Asians kind of a, um, there's just not many white people there in that Mm. way. Um, And um, so all of a sudden, um, I remember my first flight to my first trip, all of a sudden I get to this like Ivy league school. It's like, holy shit, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going there. And, and, um, I fly there to visit the campus and my plane stops in Indianapolis, Indiana. And it was horrible culture shock because suddenly <laughs> there's a white person sweeping the floor. Holy crap. <laughs> you know? and, mm-hmm. and, and, and there's a white person emptying the garbage. And, um, I'm, I'm on listening to the radio and there's no Spanish, uh, you know, and I'm thinking, whoa. And then, you know, going to Cornell, realizing that um, life ain't the way it is in, in L.A. and mm. or in Hawaii. And it was it was really it was scary. It, it was this also this feeling of profound anger towards um, my parents and my heritage because I felt really behind. Um, I I saw when I was at Cornell, which is not Indianapolis, but you're in an Ivy League, and these people, you know, mom's a professor, dad's a professor of English, you know, they they grew up, and you know, there's you know Milton on the shelf, and you're just thinking, what? Who are these people? What am I doing here? And then sometimes you get home going, you know, they're not that smart. It's just that they're ahead of me. <laughs> Well, Marcy and I, we went to the same undergraduate and we have between the two of us had this exact conversation Right. <laughs> where I think we were talking about once about hummus and just the, the the social clout of knowing what hummus is and not knowing what hummus is when you go. Yeah! Right. Oh, my God. The hummus at Cornell was awful. <laughs> <laughs> like, wasn't even good. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's like, dude, you know. I, I don't know. And and, and I, you, I just went there and go, I, who are these people? And mm-hmm. just who are you? And but then on the other hand, oh, I know who you are. You're the one you're the ones with a lot of money mm-hmm. and you're the ones who are going to be professors. And you are the ones with the office that overlooks the courtyard. And you are the ones with the books and you are the ones with the Pulitzer Prizes and you are the ones with the push carts and you are the ones with the great publications. And what the hell am I? Mm. That's so that's so interesting to me that like even like in a creative degree where you're like you know working on your writing you're honing your craft so like it's, it's funny because i i would argue like if there are so many people who seem to have sort of a similar aesthetic or set of like inspirations or even just like writing styles like it's like that's kind of a failure of of, of the program like you want to attract people that can like craft narratives in like so many different ways and like mm-hmm. i think the fact that you didn't necessarily see yourself in your cohort like i personally i'm like that's like that i feel like that's like kind of an advantage because it's like okay i bring something here that like is not like this isn't here like y'all are like y'all are missing like people like me in this kind of program and so yeah that it's it's funny how like there's even like the sense of like in in a creative discipline there's still that like kind of uniform like expectation um i think that you know yeah and but what i found out is a lot of the i wouldn't call it street sense 
because it's not the street. A lot of grandma sense, a lot of home sense, a lot of just go to common sense kicked mm-hmm. in and kind of saved my butt at Cornell, where it was like, you know, my grandma, she wasn't rich, but she had a family to feed. So it's like, what's available? What can we make? And uh, what I ended up doing was, you know, uh, instead of fighting the fights that I couldn't win, I thought, OK, what do they have to give me? And, you know, and I thought of myself as I'm not here now to to participate. I'm here to steal. Um, Mm. Let me open up my notebook, take some notes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. What can I take, Matt? What are they going to give me? Okay, what the fuck? Pardon my language, but you know, what the fuck is a pantoum? Okay, got it. Learn that. Pop that in. Sestina, what the hell is? They're all into Sestina's. Good. I'll learn this and I'm going to master this. And I take this away. Uh, Okay, I'm talking to this dude that would never talk to me again earlier but he's telling me how characterization works i'll say something profound like in order to develop a character you have to give a character a choice to make okay got it we're good i i'm good to go you know and so i found myself in the situation where um i really did feel like i was picking pockets i was Mm. i was in uh, in in summation houses, there's a term called stealing books, where you you become you go you get hired in a company and you learn how to run it and then you go off and do your own. Mm. So I this concept of a privileged pickpocket, I I I love it. It conceptually makes me happy. I never thought about it that way, but yeah, if we have to be in these institutions and feel uncomfortable anyway, you know, mm-hmm. ah, I in knowledge. <laughs> I remember one of my one. Well, it was really weird. I mean, like um. Now, this was a long, long time ago, you know, where the um, where we would have to get our syllabuses because I was a TA for a little while there Mm -hmm. and we would have to get our syllabi copied at a copy center. And Mm -hmm. uh, the people at the copy center couldn't believe I was a member of the English department. I had to get like a white person to vouch for me. This is wow. They couldn't believe I was a grad student in English. I was actually the second MFA ever to go through the Cornell program was Asian. But mm. how old is this program? Oh, God. It's been a bit. It's been around. I mean, but I, 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 but I had somebody talking about, you know, my poems talking about like the Vietnam War and shit. And then going, dude, I'm writing about my breakfast. <laughs> dude, rice. I, I eat this for breakfast. I'm not right. making a statement. I'm I'm making rice. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, I, one of my friends, one of my really dear friends there was this uh, guy from Barbados, and he just sat me down. And he said, let me tell you something. When the white man gives you money, take the money and run. <laughs> this is some Ocean's Eleven type cabri. <laughs> like, this is so funny because I – okay, so like – it's so funny because like this just brings back so many memories because like you know I so Akko and I graduated from undergrad about four years ago, and it's so funny because yeah during my time there I remember like yeah halfway through I kind of had this whole thing of like this institution has so much money and so many opportunities yes. like I can literally do whatever I want how can I like leverage this to work for me and it was just like yeah like this like kind of like Robin Hood sort of like I'm just gonna go in and like take what's mine like I, like it's just so funny to hear someone else also vocalize that because it was always it was something i mean i'll talk about it with aqua sometimes but for the most part i was kind of just like okay like i'm just like on the low trying to take from the institution but like <laughs> i didn't really yeah. talk about it that much you and know so, like, it's yeah, like so interesting i might be a mosquito but damn i can eat my fill here you right. know? So, so i was doing that but i also noticed that some of my professors even my white professors actually were class passing too they were poor 
And Mm. so I started opening up a little bit of that. So I started to see, hey, wait a minute, there there are things here. There, there are stories here I don't know about, you know, and this is, you know, to realize that, you know, being, you know, running into sort of that sort of American, um, that American tapestry, the, the weave is goes places that you don't know. And so some of it, it, it turned out that some of my uh, some of the ones who mentored me the most were actually the ones that scared the shit out of me the most. The old some of the old white guys from the South mm-hmm. actually because they gave no fucks, they were able to talk to me. Mm. And that's one of the weird things about going to some of these schools where it's the ones who who are trying to make a name seem to be the weirdest, seem to be the most exclusionary, but the ones who really don't care, you know, and, and they remember their own struggles, you can occasionally get good stuff from them. Mm. So, so... Um, that's such a good point, Mike. I I. One of the things I think that I came to realize in undergraduate was exactly that point that America in general, everyone or a lot of people are trying to be what they're not is not the right word because that's a little harsh. But every everyone almost has a facade or, oh, am I doing this right or do I fit in or what is the thing I'm supposed to be doing to belong here? And you start to realize oh, nobody, nobody is, quote unquote, the correct type of American. And when you start to realize that, you realize, oh, this whole thing is a facade, so we might as well all just be ourselves. Well, some of us realize that. I am, exactly. And it took me years, years to figure out what you just said. Um, I left Cornell, and it was the weird, it, it was strange. It was like I was eating food that I couldn't taste. I, mm. I actually left Cornell, and... You know, I won a bunch of their poetry awards um, and and things like that. But I never felt that I I, I, I never felt there that I really connected um, because I was too busy between stealing their books and feeling intimidated. I didn't feel like I developed uh, fully as a writer. So mm. leaving Cornell. I was still I, – I, I think I was still in a pupil state where I hadn't quite figured figured things out. And um, I, I left Cornell feeling like a failure, and uh, I came back to L.A. to use my – use what I learned. But, you know, I went into PR writing, into advertising and things mm-hmm. like that. Gross stuff. No, I shouldn't say gross. Some people love it. It was rough on me. Yeah. <laughs> what Was there – was there a moment or like I guess a period of time where you felt like where you felt like you sort of became actualized as a writer where like you were like, OK, like this is like like I, I like there's there's something here and, you know, I'm going to I'm going to really nurture this. And like there's a lot of potential. Well, a really awful and cool and messed up and all around thing was uh, coming to terms with my gender identity. Mm. Now, when I was at Cornell, I was still presenting male. Mm hmm. And um, although, trust me, I've always been a bit of a wash at trying to pass as a guy. It just doesn't work with me. But um, <laughs> but realizing that I was transgender uh, mm-hmm. and then trying to figure out how the heck do I survive in this world? Because, mm-hmm. mind you, at this particular point in time, we hadn't quite figured everything out with things like, you know, HIV and things like that, too. And. Now, you know, thing about it was also the narrative was, you know, being transgender was something only white people did. 
And great. You know, if I fucked up being a writer, I mean, how much more of a racial fuck up am I going to be being transgender? You Mm. know, what the hell's going on? And then thinking to myself, do I, am I really transgender or I'm just a chicken shit Asian dude because Asian dudes get no play? You know, Mm. am I selling my own brothers out by being transgender because I couldn't take the stress and strain of being an invisible Asian man in this society. This is complicated. So you felt like the stereotype of Asian American men, as we've seen in American societies, rather negative and um, emasculating. You felt like that was your responsibility then to make sure that they weren't further emasculated. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, it might be, it might be a little bit better now, but man, being an Asian dude in this society sucks ass. I mean, mm. nobody takes you – nobody takes you uh, – I'm going to just say nobody. I, when I say nobody, just most people, okay? I, I'm just mm-hmm. – um, but it, it's it's really rough. You know, you see somebody like, you know, Jeremy Lin, you know, drops, you know, 20-something points, you know, when he was coming out, insanity, and somebody says, you know, someone's going to get three inches of pain tonight. You know, that kind of thing, mm. you know, where, you know, so there's like asexual small dick little shits with no sex appeal. And this, this, per, this pervades. Um, and so I was thinking whoa, am I really trans or am I just chicken shit? So then was it a sense once you sort of came to terms with your own gender identity and how that intersects with your race, that's when you kind of felt like you were able to find your voice as a writer? Was it other way around? Other way around. Oh, I see. So you being a writer helped you. I articulated who I was through poetry. If it weren't for poetry and if it weren't for fiction writing, which, you know, and novel writing, short stories, I would still be in that loop. It was I I was able to make sense out of this complication through stories. Mm. And that's when I realized, oh, I'm a writer. Oh, okay, because this is how I process the world. Wow. So then writing is almost like a journey for you. You you start not necessarily knowing what the ending is going to be and then almost have a becoming or an actualization through it. As it continues to be today. Mm. Writing is kind of, for me, writing is casting seeds. I mean, even even like a novel, it's a seed. You think it's a complete... Uh, it's a complete work. No, that's when I when I'm finished with a novel, even when I see it in print, I have no idea where this is going to lead me. Mm. You know, it wow. led me. It led me to you. I had no idea. You were dope I, as fuck. You are so cool. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm like, I'm so, so. I, I mean, agreed with Akko. Like I'm I'm living. I'm like so curious what like so. Writing obviously is something that's very important and honestly is sort of self-illuminating in, in a lot of respects. I'm curious kind of what your writing, I guess, routine looks like. Like, when, like I guess, when do you write? Like, what's like sort of the landscape? Like, you know, I guess, how do you go about this practice that has that's meant so much to you? Mm, well, right now um, I'm working on my next novel. And so I'm in the middle of editing with it. I treat writing kind of 
like a part-time job at a fast food restaurant. What I mean by that is I get up, I write, I try to make it make the act of writing as automatic as possible, like working out or eating healthy. It's part of what makes me me. Mm. So um, if I wait around for inspiration, it's kind of like waiting around for inspiration to exercise. It just doesn't get done. Um, but I also try not to overstrain myself. I figure that, you know, if I'm writing fresh, um, what I'll do is I will write for, um, you know, half hour or so, um, get a cup of coffee, maybe play the piano a little bit, maybe come back. The idea is to capture, you know, every writing session has maybe about 10, 15 minute, a 10 or 15 minute window where it's really, really flowing. And Mm -hmm. so the idea is to capture that window as often as I can. I've realized that if I try to gut it out, I end up editing out more than I put in and costs me more anyway. So, um, so what I try to do is I try to, you know, I think to myself, I used to tell people, I think I'm brilliant for about a half hour every day, but if I can capture that half hour at the end of the week, I look pretty good. Mm. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) So I think part of the journey about uh, being a writer, and I think one of the beautiful things about being a writer is I'm aware of my rhythms a lot more. I'm aware of my title, you know, aware of the tides, when it's going to be high tide, when it's going to be low tide in my brain. And I try to work with that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I'm aware of, you know, when I'm writing, um, if I'm eating well, what's going to happen? If I don't get enough sleep, what's going to happen? And so um, it's I'm trying to develop this really organic relationship with my creative process. I, I, I don't see it as... I don't see it as this muse coming from the outside. I see it as something one can cultivate. Mm. So for the most part, would you say in terms of, I guess, the time of day, it's always in the morning or like sort of earlier in your day that you do this? Or is it kind of throughout the day sometimes too? you kind of. (laughs) This matters. This matters for everybody. I can't I can't write uh, fiction for nothing at night, but I can't write poetry for anything in the morning. Mm. Uh, In the morning, I write fiction. And then if I'm writing poetry, that's when you live that one with the notebook by your bed. Uh, and, you know, I get up and it's like, oh, crap, I write something down and I go back to sleep They're They're a little bit different. They're the, the processes are a little bit different. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, I think I think what it is, is with me, with fiction, um, it's it's meditative where um, I'm trying to put things together. And I, I feel like when I'm writing uh, a piece of fiction, it's like I'm cooking this giant dinner that I can't do all at once. So, you know, I'm cutting vegetables now. I'm going to put that away. I'm going to let that pickle. I'm going to let this dry. I'm going to bring this mm. out. And it's very sort of I know where everything goes. Whereas with with poetry, for me, it's all got to come down at once. I can edit later, but I need to get it all out at the same time. And mm-hmm. I think my mind is a little less disciplined at night. So that's when the poetry comes out. Huh. So it's almost like a creative chaos at that time. Yes, absolutely. Hmm. And um, and even right down to the thing is like that's almost like when I'm writing when I'm writing poetry, it's almost like the physical world holds me back. So um, I I write 
I've learned to write poetry with a big old fat fountain pen because it can keep up with me. You know, if I write with uh, with other pens, they skip. It freaks me out. So, mm-hmm. I mean, right down to the implements I use, they kind of foster this idea of slinging down ideas as soon as possible as they come. And then with fiction, it's a lot more disciplined. Got you. I love the way, one, that you use words. It just There's so many tidbits in this interview that are just I, I love so much. But I also feel a lot of writers don't get or a lot of young baby writers don't get to hear people's process. They hear the end product mm-hmm. and people sort of say, oh, I, I wrote a book. You know, if you just do you just grind, <laughs> you know, we're millennials, so it's a grind culture. <laughs> you just grind. You can make, you know, but I like to hear, you know, sort of the steps, the way you go through it. This it's is so the third time I'm writing my novel right now. When it comes out, it's going to be fine. But, you know, the first the first time I wrote it, I you know, I got through second time. This one's I think is going to be all right. You know, and, and we work at it. I mean, sometimes we get lucky. And like Himalaya Hilo was, I think, three years in the writing. But I kind of got most of it down the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I'm lucky. And then this next one. I'm not so lucky, but um, so, you know, I, I think to myself, well, what else am I going to do with my time? I don't follow, you know, I, I don't go see every Marvel movie. I'm going to sit here and work with my own work. Mm. Um, so I think that and the other one, too, is I think, you know, I don't really think about millennials or anybody else. I just think of younger writers. You ask yourself, you know, am I a writer or am I not? I think that hard work sanctifies the entire process. At the end of the day, you can say, you know, I don't really know, but but the work doesn't lie. Huh. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about one of the concepts in Hemele yes. Ahilo. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, this concept of tradition and modernization, um, I, there definitely seems to be a dichotomy there. And the characters struggle with it. And there's mm-hmm. a point in the story where you say today or tomorrow's ancient times, which yes. I really loved. And I feel in the post-colonial world that we live in, um, a lot of places that were colonized feel the sting of colonization and feel the scar of it. But we and, and the loss of something from the past. But we struggle with the future, with what we look like to the future. And I loved I, I don't think I'd seen that conceptualized before, and I would love to know where that came from, what the inspiration for that was, and, and just your general thoughts on it. Mm. Well, general thoughts and then back to inspiration. General thoughts are that I think one of the hardest things as a as a person of color to realize is we're just as capable of oppression as anybody else. Oh, come on. You know, and so, I mean, even if you look in Hawaii, uh, there was rampant sexism there were tribes came in and wiped each other out you know these things happen i'm 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 japanese trust me i mean i have to apologize and and bear and live and 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 the beneficiary of the cruelty of uh, of my people And, and and this goes on and on and as much as you don't want to do this because it's a nice, happy, safe place to be, we have to sometimes we can't demonize our oppressors because that one, it lets them off the hook because they're not humans, they're demons. But it also is cheap. We it it, it makes it impossible for us to actually heal. And 
So in this, this idea that uh, in this book, what I wanted to say was the answer doesn't lie in fixing things now. The answer is lies in understanding the understanding that this now that we treat so ephemerally saying, you know, we want the revolution tomorrow, we want this tomorrow, we want this tomorrow for the past, that we don't spend enough time realizing how valuable and how precious this existence is to the people who are going to be coming three, four, five, ten generations down the line. Mm. Um, you know, and being a trans person, um Seeing being a trans person means you see a lot of dead people. Uh, a lot of people have died mm. in my life, and you realize that you know those moments that we didn't think were precious were incredibly precious. My grandmas are dead. Both of my grandparents, both of my grandmothers died. Um, I still remember what you know we would think of as those throwaway moments where we were just you know um, packing stuff up after a picnic or something, or you know um, fighting with my uncle or something like that. And how many of these moments slip past us? So when I'm writing these stories, it's this, I- this idea of instead of this Western idea of life really really stinks and then there's salvation if you're lucky. Um, I, I thought of this more of a, as a Buddhist thing that, you know, this, even this idea of temporality has far, far more, it's far, far more of an illusion than you think it is. And mm-hmm. what happens if we cherish ourselves the way our grandchildren would cherish us? What would that do to our writing? How would that do, do to our day or day, day to day? I think it sure as hell would take, would make us take better care of ourselves. And maybe, um, you know, and then what does that do in in books and in writing? Um, I don't know. I, to be honest with you, I don't know what this idea of writing to the future does. Maybe it's going to take uh, – maybe it will be for the good. Maybe it will be for the bad. But but that's how I gear my work now. Mm. I, I, definitely, I definitely see in your books this sort of reverence for the present or, or reverence for each other to what you were saying almost as if how would a next generation look at us and it taking that same reverence and having it in the present with us right now and i do love the way you play with um with the with temporality here with maybe steve is god mm-hmm. maybe steve isn't god maybe steve's here maybe he's not here. maybe it's all a dream mm-hmm. who knows <laughs> i feel like that exactly it takes away the narrative of progress and and modernization and almost makes it irrelevant. And it's, it's more about the experience you have right there in the moment with everyone. I, we're, look, we're the same as we were. The, you know, we, we're just, you know, we haven't changed very much. Our technology's changed a little bit, but morally and ethically, we're still, you know, just as big fuck ups as our, you know, great grandparents were. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, nothing shows you that more than what's going on in this country right now, where, you know, all this stuff that we thought, oh, we don't do that anymore. Actually, we do. We actually do. You know, <laughs> oh, we don't think that way anymore. Actually, we we do. Uh, we don't do this genocide or this racism thing. Uh, actually, we do. And, um, you know, and to even think that we had gotten over it is just a sign of just to me um, a lot of a lot of willful ignorance, don't you think? You know, when somebody says, oh, racism is over, you just kind of look at them and go, man, you have to work really, really hard to be that blind, don't you? 
Uh, I remember when the police brutality, you know, after Trayvon Martin became, um, I guess, in the popular zeitgeist, I remember there was a moment where me and Marcy looked at each other and, and we're like, haven't they always been killing black people <laughs> and pinning <laughs> on false evidence? We were like, why is everyone suddenly surprised? Right. Yeah. It's like, hello, where have you been? <laughs> um you know where they've been is this this whole concept of um, we we used to be here and now we're here. This idea that you know we have somehow ethically and morally evolved, and 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 that just that just doesn't happen as easily as I think people think it does. Right. You know, so in my books and in my work and and when I speak. Um, it's not simply calling it out, but, in, you know, look, our sins are going to be here for a very, very long time. So we can either deny them, we can either be destroyed by them, or we better cut each other a little bit more compassion because you know what? They're going to be here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what is interesting about about your book as well is that a lot of times people levy a criticism, but then don't give a solution or even or maybe a better word is a blueprint for what a different world would look like and i think Himele ahilo does a great job of of sort of being like well here's a possible way we could live here's here's a possible way that doesn't uh, co-sign this modernization progress narrative and you know maybe the answer at the end is not to you know become as cam thinks he's going to you know become by the end of the book maybe the point is to just be and I think giving giving that sort of blueprint is 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 almost like a light in a cave. Thank you so much for noticing that. Thank you, thank you, thank you for catching that. You don't know how happy I am right now to hear you say that because that's <laughs> I mean, it's like I don't like people telling me what to do unless they can tell me why or at least take a stab at an answer. Mm. And I don't want to just be another author just saying all that's wrong in the world. I I think that, um, you know, I want to, you know, before I say what's wrong, I I don't mind risking being wrong, too. I think that's Mm. part of, that's kind of like, well, you know, it's like, look, I'm not going to criticize your dancing unless I get on the floor, too. And so this is my way of saying, look, this is what I got. I don't have a right to criticize another human being and just stop the conversation and just kind of stay by the, by the side. I'm going to, in this work, I'm going to tell you what I think. And you're free to criticize, too, because we're in this dance together. And, you know, this planet's circling around. we got to live here. Wow, that's so, so interesting because this it even I, I love this idea of like offering possibilities, but also acknowledging sort of the complexity behind a lot of these issues. Because even, and you'll come to hear this when when the episodes come out, but even in our discussions, um, Akko and I kind of talked about how it's interesting that, you know, in the novel, um, Steve Mm -hmm. and Lisa Mm -hmm. and Cam are kind of like, by the end, sort of just like, readily accepted into the community and sort of like you know for i guess for lack of a better word kind of a sort of more integrated i guess than they were (laughs) initially and how in some ways it's kind of like like what exactly is like like i guess how do you how do you interact with that sort of tightrope of like okay like steve 
to a lesser extent, Lisa and Cam absolutely kind of walked into this, you know, walk, came to Hawaii sort of with mm-hmm. these like savior models or kind of with these assumptions about what they would experience or kind of like these like oversimplifications of, I guess, what they're about to walk into. And like by mm-hmm. the end, have come to realize that like things are a lot more complicated than they initially anticipated. But in but in that process, they were able to kind of gracefully interact with people around them. It's like, how do you interact with like that with the idea of like okay but like also maybe people like cam shouldn't necessarily get like this much space or like this much room to like you know just be like i don't know just to be able to kind of like just more seamlessly be a part of this community like who i guess i guess how do you at the same time like acknowledge like the sanctity of a community um <laughs> while inviting others in like how like how like how does that process go down it's like it's it's so so tricky sometimes that or even or even to marcy's point is that is that option available for Hawaiians? You know, it's available for maybe is it a privilege to be able to to be American, come from the mainland and then become be accepted. But is that same acceptance allowed the other way around? Mm. Right. Well, this is well, first off, this is really problematic because, you know, even though my family and, you know, they're buried in Hawaii, um, we came at the behest of colonizers. Mm-hmm. And at the behest of oppressors, we worked the cane fields, worked the pineapple canneries. We were, you know, we and all of that kind of stuff. And and we are on literally on the, on the you know on the bones and and the blood of the native Hawaiians. That being said, uh, the best we can do is you remember, Cam is never accepted as native Hawaiian. Cam is just the white guy that now fits in. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve is now, you know, Steve is the perceived white guy who's, you know, actually the black guy who now fits in. And Mm -hmm. so if you allow the community to not include you, but to expand on its own to to add you on, then you I think you give the community a little bit more agency to figure out where they put you. Cam doesn't determine where he fits in. The community fits Cam. Oh, I see. To Cam. Mm -hmm. And so Cam has his space, Cam, and as long as Cam or Lisa, you know, or Steve stay in the space defined by community, just as anybody in community does, um, we're good. And right. I think the problem with Steve was not that he was trying to change things and he's trying to wield his power, but he was doing it on his own. Mm. You know? And he thought he didn't need these things. You know, he he didn't get that. You know, when you are on an island, everything is interconnected, and sometimes the interconnectivity it takes a while for them to figure out where you fit. If um, you know, if Captain Cook had come down, and and even these missionaries had come down and waited for the people on the island to negotiate with them and to think about a place, there'd be mixing, but that would be much more in line of a treaty. That would be much more in line of something of um, cross-pollination, egalitarianism. The The problem isn't mixing. The problem is one group is ramming their throat down the other group, you know, mm-hmm. and saying, no, this is where I'm going to fit. And this is where you are now. Right. And so, you know, it's not necessarily the idea of people meeting and making space in each other's communities. It's that do you take the space that the community freely gives and the community has worked out to become part of that community? Or are you destroying part of a community and um, sort of running, raf- running um, roughshod over things? Mm. Um, 
And I think that, you know, it's, it's like playing well with others. You don't need to everybody, you don't need to stay by yourself. You can all share, but it has to be something where everybody shares. And I think as Americans, we've forgotten what it's like to share. So what we end up doing is thinking, well, everyone's got to have their own space. Well, that's kind of lonely. Um, maybe there's another paradigm where people can make room for each other, change a little towards each other. But this is more about cooperation than co-option. That's a good point. I think there is a sense that we can't be in the same space as each other and no one wants to give. So we end up just going our separate ways. And maybe the real work is to, I don't know, (laughs) I struggle with it, but this book helped me think about it. So, Well, you know, in, in Hawaii, it's like when you're on an island, Hawaii can survive for two weeks without shipments from the mainland. Two weeks. That's it. They run out of milk. They run out of bread. They run out of stuff. Okay. They, they, that's all. We've got like a two-week buffer before Hawaii goes under. Mm-hmm. When there was 9-11, when 9-11 happened, one of my friends was in Hawaii and said, wow, we really understood that we're an island because there were no more flights. Mm-hmm. And you realize, oh, my gosh, you know. We don't raise wheat here. When the bread is gone, the bread is gone. We don't raise rice here. When the rice is gone, the rice is gone. We don't raise corn here. When the corn is gone, the corn is gone. And you think to yourself, wow, we're all in the same boat together. We we need to pool our resources. We need to figure this out. Even if it's going to be rice and corn and wheat, it's still food, man. And so the the idea is, you know, that, Maybe we aren't necessarily, uh, well, maybe, maybe the goal isn't everybody goes their own way. Maybe the goal is everybody pitches in um, to, to get through something. And, you know, I think you, you learn this much more on an island than you do in a place like the United States where there's these vast, vast resources. I mean, Hawaii is part of the United States, but, you know, the continental United States I'm talking about. Right. Um, so I think this is something, for example, that I think um, island culture, I think that POC voices um, can, can bring to to what defines not just American literature, but American ethos and American morality, um, that there's, you know, that paradise doesn't have to be polytheistic, I mean, monotheistic. You know, we can, polytheism can actually work. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we can all go to our different churches, but then if we come together and help each other out in a disaster or pitch in and help each other at the local food drive, um, we're good. Yeah. So maybe Mm. almost like an underlying realization that we're all human, which sounds so basic, but I guess in today's (laughs) world is not a given. Um, Mm -hmm. And interesting, Mm. it's almost like we hide, but we can hide behind our materialism in America. You know, we can hide behind, well, there's just so much excess that we don't have to think about whether or not we actually need each other because we could just keep, Uh you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So maybe I I see that point. I, I see that. And I think, that is a crutch we use. Um, but I think that, you know, I yeah, I guess it's part of me where it's like, I don't want to blame us too in some ways because it is the natural consequence of materialism. It's not, you know, I don't immediately want to go to it's a moral failing on the part of Americans because then we go into that Calvinist binge purge thing. We start flagellating ourselves. If we just say, 
look, when it rains, we get wet. It's not our fault. We, we get wet. It's just the way things are. Uh, the capitalist landscape, we've built something bigger and more you know, just greater, not greater in the sense of better, but larger than any of us can imagine. Right. And it's going to have, you know, it's going to have tectonic, it's going to have climatological effects on who we are. Uh, and it's going to affect us in ways, not all of them are going to be good, but some of it, it's it's beyond our control. So let's, let's, let's stop pointing fingers and let's just talk about, you know, getting the umbrella and start healing. Mm. Wow. Thanks, you, you do not let us get away with anything. I like this. You're like, well, let's examine that concept too. Uh, I hope you don't mind. No, I, I love know, it. I think it's great. I'm super into it. And this is this, this is the stuff that actually I tell myself as I'm writing. Mm. You know, so everything that I'm talking about, you're just kind of like this goes on. When you know, when I write, it's like you know, I ask myself, why did I kill a tree? Mm. So we have two requests. One yes. of them was if you would like to read an excerpt from your mm-hmm. book. We would love to okay. hear that. Uh huh. And then, good, good, good. So, Hemelia Hilo, as we were talking earlier, was, uh, and I'm going to read a section towards the back. Um, but Hemelia Hilo was written in Hawaiian Pigeon. And um, it was this idea, again, of how I process reality. And when I first, this book is from Topside, which is a New York press. And, um, one of the editors actually copy edited the pigeon out of the book, assuming I didn't know how to speak English. What? And so I, I said, this has got to change or I am going to pull this book out. And they relented, but because nobody was capable of editing or proofreading a book in pigeon, um, I had to do my best. So I had to function as my own editor. And obviously that's why the book, you know, and then the book, there was no, I was operating without a safety net, and you should all know that, you know, you already know that proofreading your own work is is not good, and so that's why some of this book's a little bit rough around the edges, but there's a reason behind that, and this is something that as people of color, we we go through, or people who come from an island, or people come from another culture, we have to do more than other people to get the same, and that's just the way it is sometimes and i guess that's where we start mm-hmm. talking about oppression and 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 this is where i think that we can actually correct we need more writers uh who understand that there's different that you know there's no american english there's a lot of different vernaculars there's a there's a lot of different voices and if we if we aim to make a more egalitarian and more representative american literature we need more editors we need more people in the publication machine um before you read, I just wanted to say, you know, Chaucer, he was the first one to write in away from Latin into, you know, vernacular English. Yes. And, and that was revolutionary. So I, I think, you know, writing in, and there is a movement now for a lot of people to write in their their native tongue or and, and not actually explain it either in the in the book and to have people use context clues to understand. And I think that does do something of one humanizing or making us all you know i mean bridging that gap and enforcing everyone to sort of reach a little to understand someone else and it also to your earlier point about not seeing yourself in literature and thinking shakespeare is the only literature it it, it deconstructs that as well so we i think me and marcy both really appreciated the pigeon english um we tried our hardest <laughs> with the pronunciations did we fail on multiple occasions maybe <laughs> most likely <laughs> <laughs> but but please, uh, we'd love to hear excerpts. Yeah. Absolutely. And so 
But thank you very much for that. You know, I think that when I wrote this book, I wanted, you know, I, you notice I don't italicize very much in this, you know, the pigeon, because mm. we shouldn't italicize our own language. Come on. So anyway, I'm actually going to read from the back, but I want to read from the middle because I was thinking about a conversation. So this place here is when Lisa and Nona are on top of the lava rocks. Mm. Okay. And so this is called Get Plenty Stuff to See. Lisa and Nona stopped their car and walked outside. They had come to what was one of the most desolate places Lisa had ever seen. No plants, no nothing. Just black, black rock. Not just black the way rich soil gets black, but as pure, unnaturally pure, black as the clouds were white. The black stretch of lava was one mixture of loose glass-like cinder and smoother places where the rock, once molten and flowing like gravy, had congealed into a dead and silent stone. Despite herself, Lisa began to cry. Oh no, what's wrong, Lisa? You won't hurt yourself. I was thinking, this must be what the end of the world looks like. Oh, Lisa, you got it mixed up. This is not the end. This is the beginning. Pele, stay all over here, making brand new land. Nona smiled as she mentioned the volcano goddess, and for an instant, her eyes seemed to catch fire themselves. This, all brand new. One day, between the cracks, going to have plants. Pretty soon, going to have birds, too. One day, with all the waves, might even be one black sand beach. As Nona tiptoed toward the lava, Lisa held her breath hoping that she wouldn't slip on the sharp rocks. But once on the lava, Nona seemed to forget herself, and she went glide upon them as if riding on one song. To the left, a plume of steam and smoke rose high into the air from where the fresh lava poured into the ocean. In front of them, an occasional splash peeked over the cliff. Over time, this would all be soil. Rain would fall. A plant would grow. And Nona, all mixed up in color, gliding across the lava shards, was like a single improbable flower, a brass stunning truth that even here, there was and would be life. Lisa tried to follow, but she wasn't Nona, and for her the rocks were brittle and very sharp. As she stumbled, Nona hopped over to her and led her back to the car. No need walk over the rocks, get plenty of stuff to see right from here. She motioned down. Besides, not all black. Try look, try look. See in between the rocks, the shiny stuff. Lisa saw little bits of golden string. It looked like seaweed. Careful, it's glass. We call that Pele's hair. Stay from the volcano when the lava flies into the wind. Pele. Oh, Pele. Wow, big question. Okay. I know you can read the old Hawaiian stories. And how certain things stay sacred to her. You know, like lehua flowers or hello berries, like that. Nowadays, people still stay making stories about her, how she stay protect the island, how she shows up in dreams, and sometimes even helps people who stay in trouble. And you, Lisa asked. Nona leaned against the car and sighed. Too much for me. All I know is, well, you remember what I said about painting outside when you stay outside? In a way. That's like Pele, too. She pointed across the ocean. Try look. You see out there? 
Lisa looked, but all she saw was water. Over there, one more island stick coming up. Even get one name, Lo'ihi. Stay underwater now. They say no gonna break the surface for over 20,000 years. But before I met Harry, sometimes I would spend hours just by myself over here, looking over the waist. I wonder, who can live there? Who can call that new island home? Thank you. Mm. Thank, Thank you. you. Wow. Oh, my. Mm. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. I hope that a little bit of the music of the pigeon came out. Yes, abso- it certainly did. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's actually my first speech. That's that's how I grew up. So everything you're hearing is all acquired accent. Mm. That's how I grew up speaking at home. Code switching. Absolutely. Mm. And I think there's nothing wrong with code switching. I think it makes us really cool, those of us who do it. Yeah. That's <laughs> so any other question? You had said you had two questions, so that's one. Yes. So our last question, because we are a book club, we are always looking for recommendations um, for the listeners and just for ourselves as we go forward. So we wanted to ask, what is either your favorite book or a recommendation? Mm. Well, my favorite books out of, you know, my favorite book right now is, uh, everybody knows it. It's, uh, you know, Toni Morrison's Beloved. (laughs) Um, That was the book that uh, made me realize I could write a novel. Because I didn't have to uh-huh. sacrifice being a poet. Mm. We just read Sula, actually. Um, and so for you to bring up, and we gushed because me and Marcy are silly. I we guess. live for Tony Morrison. <laughs> so like, I, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think right now that would probably, if you've not read Tony Morrison, let's just leave it there because I don't really think anything else can follow that. So <laughs> I will just tell you that I'm a huge, 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 huge Huge fan of Toni Morrison. There's just so much that Toni Morrison does in terms of craft, in terms of voice. I think reading Toni Morrison is an MFA right there. Mm. Um, there's a lot of really good work out there. Um, you know, the, there's stuff that Cobb Economist putting out, that Lambda Emerging Writers are putting out, that Kundiman's putting out, that Vona's putting out. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff with the young, up and you know, younger writers coming out. There, there, there's stuff right now that I think are, is going to like change and define American literature. So I'm going to say two things: one, Toni Morrison; two, don't be shy. There's plenty, plenty, plenty of good stuff out there, um, and probably the best writing out there is the stuff that we don't know about yet. Mm. That's real. That's fair. Out of curiosity, did, did y'all read Toni Morrison at all during your MFA program? Um, I did. I didn't talk about it because it was like, <laughs> uh, um, but also I was in the poetry program at the time. And so Toni yeah. Morrison wasn't necessarily thought of as a poet, silly enough. And this is another thing, you know, genre should mix. There, we should, one of the things about, uh, I'm talking way too much, but I'm just going to say this one last thing. Um, <laughs> when a person of color writes, they don't have much time. And so you write what comes out. You can't wait for the poem if you've got a story. You can't wait for the story if you're writing poetry. And if you're known as a writer in the community, you will be called upon to give speeches, to write poems, to write stories, to talk about these things. And so a lot of times you have to be all of those things for your community. We don't we don't necessarily have the privilege of saying, I'm going to write sonnets. We have to get in there and we have to we have to cook with whatever we have in the kitchen for whoever needs it, because that that's where we are so you know in in a way i think a lot of the way the mfa programs are set up by genre kind of eliminate 
a lot of the good stuff that happens and a lot of um and a lot of the gifts i think some of our best writers have this gifts these gifts of being resourceful of blending these gifts of working with what one has um and so you know i just hope that writers who write um who who go between genres and who mix genres and who blend genres understand they're taking part of a you know that they're part of this wonderful literary tradition that extends beyond us into our ancestors and they should just venerate it Mm. Wow, that is a word. Yeah. Um, Rika, so we want to let you go, but before you you. leave, is there (laughs) anything you want to leave the listeners with? Any shout outs? Anything you want to tell them about upcoming projects? Well, I've got. My next upcoming project is actually a children's book, and it's coming out of Flamingo Rampant Press out of Toronto, Flamingo Rampant, and mm-hmm. it's called The Great Space Adventure, and it's about this uh, queer kid who goes into the stars and finds out that all the planets are just as weird as they are and realizes <laughs> that this idea of being normal doesn't happen anywhere in the universe, and what makes you odd is actually what makes you family. I love it. Okay, I perfect. will be purchasing it yes. <laughs> when it comes out. Flamingo Rampant Press, and please do. I got to talk to the Planetary Society, and so everything in there, the planets and all of that kind of stuff, it's all going to be accurate because we want to make sure that our young ones are just, you know, as much as we can, we want to make sure that our young ones get the best possible education. Absolutely, absolutely. And, so thank you. My website is Rika, Rika, R-Y-K-A, R-Y-K-A dot com. And come visit and make yourself at home. There's, uh, you know, hopefully this new novel will get a buyer and hopefully everything else will come out. You know, it's about these Vietnamese space aliens who come over and open a donut shop. So, you know, hoping that that works. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and also the other shout out is, you know, please uh, support Akko and Marcy. They, they do good work here. And I hope that, you know, more authors will give of their time. This is good stuff. Thank, Thank you. you so much. <laughs> oh my well, gosh, I'm, I'm like blushing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but thank you so much, Rika, for your time. We really appreciate it. You're so welcome. <laughs>